Good afternoon and welcome. We on the road trip show again with Diedrich and today we've got a special guest, Simon Green. And Simon is the author of the book with all the blockhouses in South Africa. And uh, we really want to know a little bit more. And how did you get started with this? What was your interest in this when you get got started? Well, hi. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome to uh, talk about, I guess, blockhouses and how you find them. Um, as you can tell from my accent, I am not South African. Um, I moved here uh a few years ago came in about 2007 um my background was really from the army so i was in the british army for uh, about 30 years um and of course have an interest in military history and everything um historical in terms of battlefields and having a look around the country and walking the ground and and seeing various things so um after i moved here i developed an interest in uh, in blockhouses, I read an article in a getaway magazine, um, and it was the Lanesburg blockhouse. You probably passed that on the N1, driving down to Cape Town, big grey structure on the left-hand side by a bridge, uh, and pulled over, had a tea, and wondered what it was all about. And um, in reading the article in Getaway, I was I was pretty much the same. I was intrigued. What was the blockhouse? Um, where did it come from? Why did the British build them here? I knew next to nothing about the Anglo-Bull War at the time, and it started me on a journey uh, in 2009 um, about researching them. It came, became a kind of thorn, African thorn under my skin, which, um, you know, every time I went on the internet, I kind of Googled and found out a little bit more about and it developed, developed into kind of, I guess, a military um, military obsession. Um, it, you know, in reading all the books, um I was intrigued by why everybody was kind of regurgitating the same information about blockhouses. It seemed to be a fairly standard sliver of a chapter in in various books by um, really renowned artists. And I didn't think the topic had been taken quite quite far enough. And that's really how um, my interest got started. I live in Johannesburg. Um, we've got the odd one or two blockhouses still left around here. Um but the majority of them are scattered all over South Africa, from Cape Town in the south to um, Polokwane in the north, on the western side, Springbok, and on the eastern side, probably Ladysmith or into the Eastern Cape. Um, so the blockhouses are all over South Africa. Um, and that's really 2009. It started my 12-year journey in researching blockhouses. Uh, Simon? Um, yeah, yeah, go I want more. to ask you how many how many blockhouses have you logged? Um, my aim was to find everything that was left. Really, um, there were about um, over nine thousand built during the war. Some permanent, some um, nine thousand. Nine thousand, yeah. Um, wow. And left, I guess I put in the book about a hundred plus. Um, and since writing the book, you know, people are still, um, approaching me and coming, uh, coming to me and say, I've got a blockhouse on my property. Um, you think kind of, why is it not in the book or, um, come and have a look? Um, but the book captures, my aim was to capture everything that was worth a look at. So everything kind of yeah. above knee heights that there was either a ruin or, a, or a full building. And you can see behind me some of the, uh, some of the key ones. Um, the top one you can see there, the kind of brown looking one is completely gone. Uh, it was one of the ones built um, down in, in the Brandwata Basin, um, but completely demolished. Um, so after the, after the war uh, was over, the, um, you know, the, the, the country was short of building materials. And there we had a lot of blockhouses um, with corrugated iron and stone. Uh, and they were kind of repatriated to, to rebuild farms and, and, and buildings yeah. and kind of rebuild the nation. Uh, tell me one more thing. Okay, you say you're not South African. Uh, just give the people just a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and how did you land up in South Africa? Yeah, I was um, I was in the in the British Army, so I was a communicator in the Royal Corps of Signals for thirty years. Um, awesome. Commissioned in Sandhurst in 1978. 
um, and did yeah many tours around the world. Um, far I wasn't east. even born then. <laughs> must be a generation something i'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a late developing baby boomer so yeah I, uh, our guys invented the internet you guys are using it i think yeah. <laughs> now aside i mean I, I think what 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 struck me i mean I, i got hold of you and you agreed that we could sort of digitize digitize the book and put it onto the road trip app and I mean, as a military guy myself, I look at the scale of this operation. I had no idea that there were 9,000 blockhouses. I mean, there's very few remaining. And we know, you know, I mean, you know, the one in Lanesburg and the one just down south in Johannesburg, other side of sort of what, just as you're going into Villiers or something, I think there's that one at the garage, you know, so I mean, yeah, we know I think, a couple of the obvious ones. But yeah, the I think scale, we talked about a couple of hundred, but uh, now yeah. we, now there's yeah. a lot and, more. We're looking at these, and I mean, each one's got 10 guys or 12 guys in it. So you're looking at a 100,000 men tied up oh, in this in this operation. I mean, the scale of this is just it's huge. It's beyond, it's beyond imagining, the, the, and the logistics. I mean, I, I don't want to be the logistics officer responsible for feeding the guys in the, in the blockhouses. You know, and... <laughs> no, and, and <laughs> It was kind of mon- monumental. Um, of course, at the you know at the start of the war, there was there was no plan to build blockhouses at all. There was there was, there was no idea. Um, you know, it was supposed to be a, a, a relatively, uh, I guess, quick war. Uh, as we as we're seeing at the moment, um, you know, is what was happening in Ukraine. There are no quick wars, uh, and you cross the start line and things change. And during the Boer War, you know, the, the kind of two and a half years of the Boer War, things changed very quickly. Uh, and the role of the blockhouses started as, uh, as a kind of project to defend bridges in, in, in the Cape Colony, as it was then in the Western Cape. Uh, and as the British moved north, they needed to protect their supply lines, which are mainly the railways. So they then started um, building blockhouses along the railway lines, mainly out of, um, what was available. Um, Sleepers, sandbags, sods of earth, kind of natural stuff, protected the stations. Uh, and then the, the you know, the, the, the cutting boards decided to start blowing up the railway lines. So they needed to protect the whole railway lines. Um, and eventually, um, once the, 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 the British got into the, uh, the Boer Republics, uh, had taken Pretoria, taken Johannesburg. Um, the war was supposed to be over, but then, of course, the guerrilla phase, um, started and the war took on a whole, you know, different dimension. Um, by this stage, there were probably thousands of blockhouses. Um, but then this British started building, uh, lines of blockhouses across country, not along the railway lines anymore. And the, the aim was to build a kind of, um, blockhouse net in which to uh, trap the commandos. So, uh, using the analogy of the, of mm. the, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of country so, estate. The, the idea was to kind of form these big um, columns, which push the commandos into into the net to try and ca- kind of catch uh, capture. Them. You, you you touch on an interesting point here because I think sort of conventional, or I don't know, let's call it conventional knowledge for want of a better term, is that the blockhouse system was developed purely to prohibit the movement of the Boers across country. But you bring up an interesting point. That phase of the war only started after Bergendal, really, in August 1900. You know, that, that was the last conventional set-piece battle as as Kruger was moving down to um, the then Lorenzo Marx, and then it sort of kicked into the guerrilla phase. But obviously a lot of these blockers were built way before then, like you say, protecting railways, bridges, strategic points, you know, so sort of did it transmogrify from a protection thing into a, prohibit movement thing it, it ab- absolutely did uh, i mean the, the the blockhouses were built relatively late in the war so when you're talking about birkendale now the first proper blockhouses were still not being built until uh late 1900 uh kind of 1901 uh and then you know into into right at the end of the war may 1902 so it went through phases um, and the phases were all, were all what we call doctrine on the fly. It was all made up to, to counter whatever the, you know, the, the Boers were doing. The, the, you know, the Boer forces really drove what, what was happening in terms of, um, warfare and moving from a, 
um, you know, conventional phase into into a guerrilla phase meant the tactics had to be changed and strategy had to be changed. Um, so, so initially it was a, it, they were built for for bridge defense, key point defense, then lines of communication defense, and then, as I've said, you know, said latterly these these cross country lines and and a kind of network of, of blockhouses to um, to really drive the boars into, like a like a shoot on a country estate. That's the analogy, really. I, I kind of well, I mean, the, you know, the, the the British Army was 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 officered by the landed gentry, by people who you know went for the weekend and went with beaters. So the beaters uh, are uh, analogous to the roving column, uh, and literally some of these roving columns were were thirty forty miles long troop shoulder to shoulder, kind of pushing through the veldt to and uh, drive the. The commandos into into a blockhouse line. Um, quite often, those were on the railways where there were armored trains as well. Um, so that's that's the analogy. It was like a it was like a country estate kind of shoot. Um, I've got a question. Um, if we could, I think this might be. If we start from the Cape up towards uh, where we are, um, is there specific blockhouses that's got uh, more significance than the other if we can like take a road trip basically yeah sure um the n1 is a you know is, is a is a great route to drive when i drive down to to cape town i mean i'm, I'm driving down to a, to a to a book fair next week to richmond in the in the cape and as you kind of take a trip either, you know, from the north down to the south or to the south up to the north. The N1 is a, is a, is a great route. It roughly follow, follows the old railway line. Um, so if you start in, in, in Cape Town and start driving up, you'll find blockhouses in, uh, in Wellington, in the Karoo, in Lanesburg. Uh, past Lanesburg, you can drive into the Karoo, kind of off the beaten track, get the, Get the SUV tires dirty there, um, and you can find a good number of um, blockhouses. <laughs> like the one over my shoulder here. This one is at um, a place called Brackport Station near Victoria West. Um, that's in a in a great condition, um, more by luck than judgment. It's just off the beaten track and far away from kind of human civilization. Uh, and if you come up to uh, places like Three Sisters, there's one there called Crom River, uh, a ruin. Quite close to it, um, Beaufort West. Um, interesting when you get to Bloemfontein, um, you're kind of running out of the of the uh, stone blockhouses, but you can go to the um, you know the Anglo Boer War Museum, which is on the app, and you find oh, yes, uh, yeah. yeah, you find a repositioned blockhouse there. So um, some of the blockhouses got protected by by museums, you know, relocating to them. So um every museum that did that again put on the put in the guidebook and it's you'll find it um through the road app, road trip app. So some off the off off the beaten track as well. Rich Richmond's got that way that that wonderful bookstore is that guy with like the three houses panel beaten together with that with him who made that enormous <laughs> bookshop. I, I think so. That's where I'm going yeah. next week. So I'm going, uh, I'm going into the book. No, Richmond, Richmond, Richmond's a lot. I love, I love the little, little town of Richmond. They've got a wonderful little restaurant in there as well that makes the most awesome um, babuti, just by the way. But we're a little bit, little bit off topic. But uh, Richmond, I think, I think that's where that, there's a guy there who I think the story went that he managed to buy up all the books from some provincial libraries when a whole lot of provincial libraries shut down. And he got them for an absolute song, and now he's now he's got one of the biggest book secondhand bookstores in the country. So yeah, it's, it's huge. It's, I mean, Richmond is called a book town, um, and interestingly enough, it's also got a blockhouse as well. Um, it does. Well, it's oh. more like a, a little stone fort. Um, oh, there we go. <laughs> but it has it, it's in you know you find Richmond in the in the book and run probably on the app as well. And Richmond, just while we're on the topic of Richmond, we got to we got to talk about road trip. It's got you know about the Richmond Post Museum. Yes, yeah, indeed. It's one of it's one of two saddle horse museums in the world. Strangely enough. So anyway, but that 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 that's off the point. But uh... no, nothing's off the point. We're talking about blockhouses, and Simon has got some jokes for us as well down the line. I hope he's going to tell us. 
<laughs> no, maybe not. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, the, one of the kind of, you know, we, we're talking about getting off topic and everything like that. And what, what I kind of term blockhouses as kind of, um, dots in a matrix of, 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 you know, interesting things to see in South Africa. And once you start joining the dots, you can go and visit a blockhouse or go and visit a saddle museum in Richmond and add something to the trip. That's kind of the beauty about the app really is you can, you can find something that's worth seeing when you're on a trip, but then find something close by that maybe you weren't that interested in to start off with, but is worth, you know, going for a little trip, either, a, you know, interesting coffee shop in a, in a jail, which you find in, in, in Grahamstown or, you know, something else. And that's, that's heritage. Heritage has to be brought alive through, through people visiting and, and tourism and things like that. And that's, when I give yes. talks, that's kind of one of the themes I give as well. Use stuff like technology and books and apps to uh, go and explore and find stuff. Yeah, because again, one thing that struck me—I <laughs> didn't, I never, like I said, when I, you know, when I when I got initially got hold of you, I never realized the scale of this of the whole blockhouse system in South Africa. But yeah, we've been talking about it a lot. The other interesting thing that that, that, that struck me that is these different designs. Obviously, they, you know. I mean, you're talking a massive cost. So obviously, they, they're obviously trying to save 10 bricks per blockhouse at some point. You know, the Treasury could not have been happy with, with 10,000 yeah. <laughs> blockhouses in the budget. So, you know, I'd obviously evolved a little bit. And, and where, where can we see these different designs? What are the different designs of these blockhouses? Okay. I mean, over my shoulder, you'll see a kind of a couple. That's the, the one in brown there is a, is a really is a mini castle. You might liken that really to a little medieval castle. It's got a turret and, and you can probably see got a, if you can see on top, it's got a little flag on as well, British flag, just in case you didn't know that the Brits are I'm building. I'm just going to zoom into that one. I little castles there and, and everything going on. Um, but the, you know, the one you see down front by my, my kind of poster child is the one at, um, one at Brackport station. There were about 18 of these originally built, you know, next to nothing. Um, but once the Brits started building, they need, needed to build in high, qu- high quantity. The, the blockhouses you see in the pictures here are the, the kind of, you know, the, um, the standard patterns, masonry ones, which cost about, about a thousand pounds at the time to build. Uh, and two or three months to construct. So if you want to build 9,000 blockhouses, you can't build stone ones. So you need to mass produce blockhouses. So what they came up with was, was um, originally a hexagonal design, which was made out of, um, um, uh, eight sheets of, sorry, six sheets of, uh, corrugated iron and kind of joined together, but had corners on it. So, and these eventually morphed into a round design where you had a sandwich of, of, uh, corrugated iron filled with shingle off the, off the belt. Um, and that's when they started having blockhouse factories. There were about, I guess, about half a dozen factories from Bloemfontein, Pretoria, Johannesburg, um, yeah, Cape Town. So they started wow. then mass, mass producing and making a blockhouse is really in kit form. Like it was the original kind of IKEA idea. They made blockhouses. They actually assembled them uh, in the factory, numbered the parts, uh, and I've, you know I've, I've just seen a blockhouse that was rescued from uh, the Western Cape, and it's all numbered. It's got all the numbers which join up with all the joists in the, in the timber, and so these that, things were assembled, disassembled, flat packed, and then shipped out to to the sites in 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 numbers. You know, blockhouse factories were making blockhouses. 50 a week, uh, something like that. Um, so they were really, um, churning these blockhouses out, delivering them by train and ox wagon and build, build, build. Yeah. Uh, that must be an astronomical, um, undertaking to do all those blockhouses. Me and Didrik were doing, uh, these shows and we talked about a couple of hundred of them and you say there's like 9,000, but that must be have been one hell of an undertaking. <laughs> and there's one particular one that uh, Didrik mentioned that was uh, made from uh, the tiger's eye, Didrik? Yeah. No, that's, that, that's the one in Prisca. They obviously, uh, obviously, just used, they obviously just used the local stone and built themselves a fort out of the local stone and it's called a blockhouse. I mean, it did, I think it did the same purpose. Absolutely, yeah. 
So what what happened in the in the kind of later stages of, of the war? Once the you know the Brits had kind of pressed into the into the Boer re- republics and were trying to capture the the Boers who were you know zipping about the um, the veld, was uh, the commandos then decided to come and stir it up in the in the in the Cape Colony. So they came south and Smuts and his commando and, and various other commandos. So then all the all the little dorpy towns in the in the Cape Colony. Uh, needed protecting as well, and people started uh, building forts of kind of various sizes and designs. And of, of course, there weren't um, so many British, um, I guess, army officers to 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 uh, influence the forts. And we have a you know a vast array of different forts that are built in the Cape Colony. There's an amazing one at uh, Jensenville, uh, which has got walls which are meters meters thick. Um, the one at Prisca is very interesting. Again, I think it's hexagonal and it's got what we call, uh, battered walls. Uh, battered walls are kind of slope out like this. So they've got walls that, uh, that slope out. So you can't get close to the, the loopholes and throw a grenade in or something like that. So you end up standing away from the wall so the guys inside can, can shoot you. And it's unique. You know, it's a, it's, it's a unique design. Um, one of the beauties that we've got in South Africa is nearly every blockhouse that survives is is unique in some way. I'm forever telling people, uh, there's one in Pretoria on government land. It's a protected monument. It's one of the original blockhouses that was built by Major Rice. Um, completely new, unique. It's a, it's a one-off. It's the only one left in the world. And you go to the one at Priska, again, completely unique. Um, and we've got a lot of unique heritage uh, in terms of the kind of, you know, bits and pieces from the Boer War. Bearing in mind there were battlefields. You go to a battlefield, uh, there's not kind of so much to see, but you go to a blockhouse, there is something to see. Um, and quite often you have combinations of sites, like the one that there's one at Modder River, there's one of these, um, we call these the, these ones, the Elliot Wood Pattern blockhouses. So you go to Modder River, uh, there's a little monument there, there's a blockhouse. And prior to that, there was a war, there was a battle at Modder River. So you can go and uh, visit the blockhouse, which was built later on, but you can also go and visit the battlefield at, at, at Modder River. So, um, the beauty of our blockhouse is it's kind of something to see and, you know, go inside and climb to the top floor and, and have a look at. And, um, you know, you kind of use your imagination what it was like getting 12 guys with all their equipment and their, uh, their yeah. sleeping attire and everything, you know, crammed into a blockhouse. And, and kind of just bear in mind that, the, you know, the numbers involved are ranking between probably 56, 70,000 British soldiers. And then we also had, um, blacks as well. You know, the black natives are also employed as, uh, as night guards, as sentries. So quite often, and the blockhouse lines had, had positions in between. So there'd be a tent outside as well with a native guard uh, of between two and four people. So you can start to see now that the, the the quantity of people that were deployed in these and needed to be fed. And if you think about the career watered every day, um, you know, water isn't that, that um, um, it, you know, it's quite scarce in the, in the, in the, in the crew. So it, it really was, it was, it was a phen- phenomenal um, effort. Um no, I mean you mentioned you mentioned a couple. I mean the interesting one is, um, I mean if you look at you said you know the Boers started ranging far, far and wide, causing stirring it up a little bit. You know, I mean there's there's a little Anglo Boer War monument at a place called Stillby, just just off the N2 as you're sort of heading Albertina between sort of Albertina and Heidelberg. That's the most southerly battle of the Anglo Boer War. You know, I mean, and that's that's thirty forty kilometers away from the coast. Yeah. Yeah, indeed, yeah. yeah. I I only know Stillby from the from the from the gin distillery. Of <laughs> course, uh, being an ex-British army officer, I know where all the gin distilleries are in 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 South Africa. So uh, again, you know, this is this kind of the beauty of the app, and I hope you've got the gin distillery on there. <laughs> in Barosh, it is. You know, Barosh gin. But uh, but an amazing place. Yeah, um, far and wide, far and wide. Um, if you go. Well, that's that's kind of south. If you go up to Springbok, so there's you know um, Smuts Commando got to Springbok, um, they captured towns uh, in Springbok uh, and laid siege to Okiep. Uh, there were blockhouses built there. Blockhouses attacked and dynamited, and you know you can you can go and uh, go and explore Springbok and find uh, the remnants of blockhouses. It, it's interestingly enough, it's one of the places I put put in the guidebook, but didn't actually go and visit. 
Uh, I visited about 85, 90% of kind of all the sites. But if you're an explorer and an adventurer, you can go and, you know, go to Okiep and have a look and find where the blockhouses were. There's, there's some maps in the guide and, you know, whilst you're up there road tripping, um, with the app, um, you can, you can go and do a bit of, um, unique adventuring and, and find places, uh, off the beaten track. No, I mean, those, those little towns hold an absolute treasure house. I mean, I, I love Springbok. I, I, I once spent two days, three days running around Springbok and Okeep and the mountain passes and going down to Port Nolith and that. Yeah. But again, something that struck me with these blockhouses is like Krugersdorp. I think what you said, there were, there were six blockhouses protecting Krugersdorp, I think. I think, I think two remain. I think you said there were six or something that, that would, and again, no, I don't think anybody realizes the scale of, of this, you know, six blockhouses for a tiny little town like Krugersdorp. Yeah, I think, I think at the time Krugersdorp was, was, was quite a key, uh, quite a key town, you, you know, kind of bigger than we think. Um, the one left in, in Krugersdorp, it, again, is unique. It's got some, uh, what we call angle bastions. So bits built on opposite corners uh, of the blockhouse to give it kind of better firepower and better cover and stuff like that. Um, it, it, it's a blockhouse that was one of four. There was, it's called Fort Harlick. There was, there was some more forts, Fort Danoon, Fort Craig, again, built around Krugersdorp. And Krugersdorp was, yeah, well protected. Um, uh, and not with, not with temporary blockhouses, with proper masonry stone built blockhouses. Um, interestingly enough, you mentioned Krugersdorp. It's very much on my radar. The local hiking club has invited me to go and hike to sites. Um, um, people have, have got the guidebook and said, you haven't got these blockhouses in your guidebook. And, you know, we'd, we'd very much like them, um, included. Please come and have a look. So the hiking club, uh, in Krugersdorp have invited me to go and hike on a reserve that's kind of just north of Krugersdorp, where I believe there's, you know, a couple more, uh, blockhouses, whether they're blockhouses or not. I, you know, I don't know. I haven't been to see them yet. Um, but there's a lot, you know, still left to discover. I devoted 12 years of my life to, um, to researching them, research trips back to the UK and a lot of the archives in, in South Africa and road tripping myself. You know, I probably did six, 7,000 kilometers worth of road tripping, um, with my son. You, you can tell how long it took me because if you look at my book, my son is about six years old uh, and now it's about, he's about two meters high, you know. So, um, yeah, I spent, spent a while touring around. We've got some great memories of, of road tripping. Um, and I think that's one of the exciting things about finding new stuff and road tripping and all, you know, as Dietrich said, all the, all the little dorpy towns and to go and have a look at. There's always something to see in one of them. It's famous for something. Um, Burgersdorp, there's, there's two blockhouses in, in, in Burgersdorp. You, you know, I never knew Burgersdorp was the kind of home of the Afrikaner language and there's a museum there, I think, to the Afrikaner language. So you find one thing uh, in in one of these towns, and there's always something else to find out. There's a jail there, and the jail's got a story, and 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 there's you know it, it's a it's a vast country. I'm driving down to uh, say I'm driving down to Richmond, and you know, when you start driving, you get the you get the the feeling of scale for the country and how much there is to see on a doorstep. We really don't need to go on holiday. There's, there's so much to see here. Really. Well, that, that, you know that, that's what? kind of why we, why we built the app anyway. <laughs> yeah, and uh, South Africa has got such a rich history. And I just wish everyone can embrace it, then we will have less shit in the country. But um, now, why does um, Krugersdorp, and why does it have six blockhouses? Is is there a reason for that? Uh, do you know? Anything? Um, it's probably um, probably to do with the mining. I would guess at the time. I haven't you know? Haven't researched uh, all the areas where where blockhouses were built and and the purpose for it. Um, but yeah, I guess that might make sense. Yeah. I well, either either so. that or it was or it was sort of the old British strategy of sort of take over the. The capital and obviously the link with President Paul Kruger, et cetera, et cetera, in Krugersdorp, you know, yeah. sort of a mental, sort of, sort of a psychological ops kind of thing. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah <I> could, <laughs> could well have been. Yeah, I've even got in in the book. You'll even see a picture of one of the blockhouses, one of the one of the um, uh, 
uh, one of the prefabricated ones, built on top of mining gear. You know, it's actually positioned on the top of a, of a mine head, literally, you know, uh, 20, 30 feet above, above the ground. So protecting, protecting assets was important. And, and, you know, the, the gold mines at the time were, were an asset that, that, uh, needed protecting. So, yeah. Well, we, all, we, we, all, we all kind of know that the war was fought because of the gold. So, uh, you know, the underlying reason was, was, was the, the income from the gold mines. But, yeah, yeah. uh, but anyway, and okay, Simon Cup, just, just sort of, if, if someone's on, on a road trip, and I mean, we know the obviously ones, I mean, like the, the one outside Lanesburg is, is sort of the, the most easily accessible, I think, in the entire country. It's like right on the N1. I mean, you can't miss the damn thing. You don't even, yeah. you don't, you don't add a hundred meters to your journey by stopping to, stopping at it in Lanesburg. Where, yeah. where else are what you consider the best examples possibly to go and look? At a blockhouse, because a lot of them are around. A lot of them, the, the insides have been gutted. I mean, I've been lucky enough to find a couple where the platforms still exist. You can go out onto like the third floor, onto the little ramparts, and onto the little bastion that sticks out. You know, and I mean, yeah. it's a bit rickety and stuff, and sometimes a bit scary. But I mean, that gives you kind of an idea of what these guys actually had to go through that were living in these blockhouses. But that could not have been a nice, nice assignment. Six months in a blockhouse. And I'm sure that those are all the naughty guys that got God given those. <laughs> no, it's, it, it, it was, it was everybody. I mean, if you look at the, the, um, you know, a lot of blockhouses are in regimental histories. You look, every, every regiment pretty much apart from cavalry regiments. There's nowhere to put a horse in a blockhouse. Um, so the cavalry regiments were, you know, were busy, were busy supporting the mobile operations, but nearly everybody served in a blockhouse and six months, if you were lucky. <laughs> you know, some some battalions were were eighteen months. Oh. They must have gone gone kind of stir crazy. Um, but, you know, if you want to go and see blockhouses, um, some of the best places to go would be Sturmberg. Is interesting. It's got two blockhouses, Sturmberg. Uh, one is pretty much um, used as a, a sheepfold these days. Um, um, doorways cut at ground level to kind of repurpose, I think, for the, for the sheep. But the other one at Storenberg is, is a kind of B and B. You can actually go and, go and sleep in that. Um, somebody still owns it. It's on, it's on private land. Um, uh, and you can, you know, phone up the lady and go and book a night and stay in a blockhouse. Um, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, other ones. Let me think. Um, you've got you've got that one in your book. It's I think I've got it here. Anglo Boer War Blockhouse Stormberg Number One. That's the one. Elliot is an Elliot Wood Pattern Standard Blockhouse. Yeah, <laughs> same as the one here, the blue one on the. Yeah, on the, on yeah. The no, that, that's in your book, so guys. There's there, there's a reason to go and go and get the app and and buy Simon's book to have a look at it. And yeah. I mean, we'll get onto the books. We'll get onto the books in a, in a bit. But yeah, no, that yeah. would be a good one. But I think that's the only one that's turned into some kind of commercial operation, isn't it? Or was it one or two uh, coffee houses and things? Pretty as well? much think so. There was there was a um you know the guy one of the engineers who um built the Harib Dam. Uh, for example, um, he bought a property at Noble's Ponds. Uh, Noble's Pond had a long bridge across it, a railway bridge, uh, and used to have two blockhouses, one at either end. Um, the one on the north side got demolished and was repurposed into a, into a farm. But the one in the south, um, was a ruin, which he turned into a four bedroom family home. Um, I was fortunate to go on a visit. I, you know, I met oh, the owners, got invited in for tea. Um, one of the, the the reasons for doing the book was to kind of capture everything and preserve everything for for posterity. And this is just happens to be one site you can't really visit because it's on private land and you can't go, you know, knocking on people's doors all the time. But you can have a look uh, at the book how you can repurpose one of these and in, in, you know into a family house. Um, pretty dark inside. The guy's pretty cunning with his use of uh, lights and mirrors inside, I have to say. Uh, cut one or two skylights in various places. But the top floor, um, you know, had, had a had a, a cantilevered, cantilevered balcony on there, which was one of the original guard positions. So you could kind of, you know, lie in bed there and look out over the, over the Orange River. Um, and there's a few of them along the Orange River. There's another one at Orange River Station, uh, a bit further down the river. Again, that's that's well preserved and and uh, and quite unique. Um, 
Uh, what would you say is the best way to describe a blockhouse for people that don't know what is a blockhouse? Okay, <laughs> yeah, it's I'm, like a like a mini, like a mini castle. You can see the one at the top there. It's it, you know, it's like a mini castle. Yeah, uh, it's designed to protect something, um, an asset or a railway line or a bridge. Um, the holes you can, Sorry, a line of sight as well, I suppose. Yeah, you need to be able to see what you're you're protecting. So the one I was just describing at Norval's Pond, we go inside, it's got tells you how many meters it is to the bridge, five hundred yards to the bridge, and that's what you set your rifle sights on. So when you kinda of open fire, you've got you know, you know where you're firing, um if there's some some somebody trying to blow the bridge up or something like that. So they're designed to protect something and to fight from. Uh and normally to for, for observation from. So if you look here on the kind of top floor, you've got an observation platform as well. And obviously the higher up you get, the more you can see across the veld. And the guards would have um, stood in there and been able to see, you know, horses, horses riding across the veld, kick up dust and attract attention, things like that. So observation, protection, and it's got some firepower as well. And normally I had a trench around it, if they could dig a trench or uh, some sort of stone wall to be able to um, fight from as well. So it's it's like a mini fort. Yeah. Fortification. Now, I mean, the, the Anglo-Boer War, I mean, it's South African War, Anglo-Boer War, South, whatever you want to call it, whichever name you want to give it. I mean, it obviously still resonates and reverberates today. And in fact, I even got a message from my daughter today that she won a, she won a, a history debate in her class about the Anglo-Boer War. So, so these are still being taught in schools. And uh, I think I think I think the question was: Did the British deserve to win the war? Okay, so that we'll reserve we'll reserve that question for a, for a different for a, thing, a different debate. But <laughs> um, but it, it kind of I, I just giggle. I mean, I, I love these kind of coincidences, and I sort of I, I get that message from my daughter today, just when we were about to go into podcasts about the Anglo Boer War, and particularly about. A specific, and I mean, we've never done this on the on our on our podcast before. Yeah, so we haven't. Done. Do you do you think the blockhouse system actually worked? Did it play a major role in the Brits eventually achieving a rather nasty victory? That was one of the the, the questions I really wanted to ask. And if you look at the title of my first book, it's called Anglo Boer Blockhouses: A Military Engineer's Perspective. So what I brought to uh, the topic of blockhouses was was a, uh, a a military mind. A lot of history is written by historians, by academics. Um, so I wanted to bring a military perspective to it. And, you know, fighting wars is about kind of winning and losing and combat effectiveness and ratios. Uh, and I've got an engineer's brain. So I like I like statistics and I like finding new stuff and working stuff out and um making sense of things that maybe didn't make sense before. And the blockhouses kind of, you know, when you think about it, everyone's shocked. Well, there were 9,000. Why did they build so many? So I put it in context. I put why the blockhouses were built. They were built to do X, Y, and Z, defend key points, defend lines of communication, provide a net to, to for counter mobility. So I've added a lot of military military terminology to the process of doing it. Then you come to the, 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 the idea, well, were they, how did they fit into the overall strategy? Was it just about blockhouses? Was blockhouses a war winning strategy or, or not? And then you have to look at the whole strategy of why blockhouses were built and what else was done as well. So there were two parts to that. One, um, really was, um, denying the Boers resources. Um, when the guerrilla phase started, um, the key resources for the Boers were really their farms and their homesteads and everything that was left. Um, and if you look at the, the, the military logic as opposed to the emotional logic of burning farms and destroying stock, and, and it was done for the kind of logistical reasons to deny the, the Boers any logistical base from which to fight from. So if you want to stop a commando uh, feeding itself from its own farm, you have to destroy the farm. That's the military logic. Um, pretty unpalatable, you know, um, in, in, in any way yeah. of thinking. And the thinking 120 years ago was completely different. It was a legitimate military strategy. That was, that was the, the concept of the day. So that's, that's one part of it. Denial of, uh, denial of resources. The, the next part then is, um, really, um, 
capturing Boer commandos. And that was done with a, a kind of variety of, of strategies. One was um, the blockhouse lines, building the blockhouse lines. The other one uh, was the roving commandos. You needed to 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 kind of chase them. Um, added to that, we had armored trains in there as well. Um, so what I did was um, worked out how, how the roving columns operated. There's lots of figures about the capture rates, the the kind of um, monthly capture rates of of the boars, and I basically did a analysis of. Uh, the effectiveness of the blockhouse system. So when the blockhouses were built and cuts a kind of long analysis short, and I did some graphs and uh, those are kind of in the military engineer's perspective book. Um, it was a war of attrition over 16 months by chasing the boards around the, the, the belt. Every time they, they were forced onto a blockhouse line, normally they ended up crossing it, but they lost something. They lost some people, some cattle, some trucks. So every time um, there was a, a Boer commando forced against a blockhouse line. They normally got through it. They, they weren't um, barriers. They were relatively porous. Um, you know, Duvet uh, and his commando crossed the blockhouse lines several times, but every time he crossed, he lost something. So over a period of time, it was a kind of war of attrition. Um, you know, Duvet's view it, were, of the blockhouses were it was the uh, the war, uh, um, the theory of the blockhead calling uh, the Brits blockheads for, for, for building it. And, and his view was that, uh, you know, the, the blockhouse lines protracted the war by, by you know, by so many months. Well, you know, maybe he would say that. Um, but from, from the British side, there were a key parts of an overall strategy, denial of resources and denial of movement by, by you know, by chasing the blockhouse lines. Um, just to give you an, uh, you know, a kind of final view of the scale of the operation, Smuts Commando, when it came in, into the Cape, uh, tour, it was in 1902. We're getting towards the end of the war now. The Brits were still building a blockhouse from Victoria West to Lambert's Bay, 600 kilometers. And that's, you know, 600 blockhouses were still being built up until, uh, April, May time, um, you know, at the end of the war. It was called that particular one. Uh, all um, rice pattern, all small little blockhouse. It was called the Great Wall of China for some reason because it was so long. <laughs> uh, you know, they were, they were still building blockhouses right up until, you know, the, the, the kind of war finished. And Smuts Commando finished, you know, we talked about Okiep. That's where he he kind of got the word to go back to Vrinaking for the, for, the, for the peace talks. So the war was still raging, you know, backwards and forwards, up and down between the, the former republics and the Cape. And the Brits were still building blockhouses and still chasing Devet and Smuts at, you know, at the end of the war. But by the time, you know, we got to the end of the war in, in, in May 1902, in combat effectiveness terms, the, the, the Boers couldn't really fight anymore. There was nothing, there was kind of nowhere to go, nothing left to fight. Um, the, Forces were in tatters and, and kind of the war was over. So it was a, it was a, you know, gradual war of attrition and the blockhouses played a part in that, um, kind of equal part with the, with the kind of roving columns. Yeah. So I mean, if you, if you look at it, you know, you say it's a war of attrition, you know, I mean, for, for the Boers to go into a, a race or a race or like a, whatever it is on, on resources against the British Empire. I mean, that's a losing strategy. Or on the side of the British, it's an absolute winning strategy. You can't outcompete the British Empire, you know, on 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 resources. I mean, it's an endless pot, basically, and you've got a couple of those ragged guys fighting it. But on the other side, you know, like you say, it's a it is a strategy to deny resources. That's always the best strategy: hit the guy's supply lines because then he can't fight, and it's a yeah. relatively low risk exercise. Rather go blow yeah. up the guy's ammo dump or take out the train or something rather yeah. than going into a head to head fight with yeah. someone. It just makes a lot more sense yeah. to do that. You know, so, uh, you know, in looking, in looking at that concept, that's kind of tit for tat what happened on, 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 you know, different scales. When the, when the Boers started to, uh, to move into the guerrilla phase, they attacked the train lines. They blew up trains. And the Brits considered this a, you know, a ungentlemanly, heinous crime. <laughs> To, to go and, you know, blow up trains with people on it. And, you know, I was reading the other day, I just um, bought a book on, on, you know, the train wreckers, Hinden and people who are uh, the Irish Brigade and, you know, Irish Brigade love dynamites and blowing up trains and 
um, were quite effective at it. And the Brits considered that, you know, extremely ungentlemanly, but it was the same concept in, in, in application. You know, deny people, uh, lines of supply and the movement of, of assets and troops and, um, and go and raid some as well. Um, you know, there were some done, um, there was one called the, the whiskey train. When the Boers attacked, they, um, they blew up a train full of whiskey and, and, and had a belly full at the time, uh, I think as well. No, that, 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 that's a famous one. I mean, I mean, it just shows. I mean, I think, I think they all, they all, I think both the Boers and the Brits drank all the whiskey and had a party together at the end of the, at the end of the incident, I mean, they derailed the train and they, they wound up having a massive party, much like, you know, the, yeah. Germans, the Germans and the English in, in World War One. you know, yeah, where they yeah. decided to call a truce for the day and have a party and play the game of soccer. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Boers and the British guys got, got drunk on the whiskey out of the whiskey train. So, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's, it's one of the, um, it should have been one of the legacies of the war, the old soldiers kind of forgave each other. And we were talking about legacies of warfare and, you know, the emotional parts of it. And, you know, sadly, sadly, that's not always the case. Um, normally the average Tommy and the average, um, say, Fricky from the Boer Commando would be able to do that. And there are many instances in the war, you know, of people, people, um, meeting on the belt and not killing each other, but ended up having, you know, having a, a, a smoke or a, some tobacco together. Uh, and doing that, and uh, you know, that, when we look at heritage, that's kind of what we should be doing: having a smoke, having a beer, having a braai, and, and you know, and and round the campfire telling stories. Um, I mean, an awful lot of guys stayed behind. I mean, if you look at if you look at Stevenson Hamilton, he was the guy who started the Kruger Park, or was regarded as father of the Kruger Park. He was an old British soldier who stayed behind. You know, yeah, I, I think I, one of the guys out of, of Stanica's horse, wasn't he, or something like that? Yeah, had, uh, uh, yeah I, I don't know his exact history, but he was a British officer. He was a colonel. He was a colonel who stayed behind. Yeah. And I, I, whenever I travel down to the Cape to Cape Town, I stay over in um, Beaufort West, and there's a lovely spot up in the hills just outside Beaufort West. And again, that's a guy who decided to stay behind and started a farm in Beaufort West. He fell in love with the with a Karoo. You know, and yeah. there's this massive integration or, or what should have been. But I mean, I think there's an awful lot of bitterness, um, still that floats around South Africa. I mean, it, it, again, I find, I've always find that a bit weird that you've, that you're still fighting with something that happened 120 years ago. I mean, come on, guys, you know, get over yourselves, really. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's not anyway. Okay. Simon, so. Your books, you've got, you, you've got two different books. You've got one, which is the guidebook, and then you've got the other, the engineer's perspective on, on this whole thing. And I mean, I, I love it. I'm an infantryman. I, I, I'm, I'm, lo- I, I look at it from the point of view of trying to motivate my troops to stay in the blockhouse, number one. And I'm going, that's yeah. a hell of a job. And yeah. as an infantry guy, I'm looking at this and I'm going, I've got to get past this line. And that's also one hell of a job if I'm on the other side. Yeah. You know? So just from an infantry point of view, it's a, it's an interesting concept. And I mean, just, I think from a logistical point of view, the loggies, the loggies are going to be going stupid that I've got to supply a hundred thousand men with water. Like you said, water. I mean, I've been to some of these blockhouses in the middle of the Karoo and you're miles away from water. So how the heck do yeah. these guys survive? I mean, Springfontein is a perfect one. There's that restored, um, blockhouse on the hill as you're driving down past Springfontein, also on the N1. Yeah. And they, they're yeah. a couple of miles away from town. So how do they, how do they get their water in there? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Just so I, you're mentioning all the places that are kind of on my radar at the moment. I just <laughs> just received an old defense map of Springfontein and found every uh, gun position, uh, you know, artillery piece position and blockhouse that was built around Springfontein to protect Springfontein. Well, so, I think that was a massively it, important railway junction. The Springfontein was yeah, a spring. Yeah. That there was water there for the locomotive. That's yeah, how Springfontein yeah. started. Yeah. And there was a concentration was, camp you know, there. There was a concentration camp there, uh, probably black and white. I'm not sure, but there, and there's a hospital built there. Um, Emily Hob House passed through there. Springfontein is, you know, is, is, is a wealth of information. Um, really, really is. Um, it, you know, in terms of the book, originally I had one book. Um, I'd been writing for 12 years. Um, my wife was, you know, I dragged my wife and family. Uh, a lot of them, you know, uh, coming back from Cape Town off the beaten track. Um, you'll even find a picture in, in, in the guidebook of me bogged into the, 
uh, Dwyker River in the middle of the Dwyker River after coming back from the Cape Argus. <laughs> My wife had a, a fractured arm and, and she, um, she was helping me dig the Fortuna out of the, the Dwyker River. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of family history kind of gone into the, into the book as well. You'll find a, a picture of my, you know, my son in the blockhouse in Bergville, which is a moss shell hole. He's busy doing some sword drill in there with, with, uh, you know, a guy from the moth. So I've been writing for 12 years. My wife said, if you don't finish this book, I'm, I'm going to kind of divorce you kind of thing. Um, you need to finish it. You need to get it done. You need to publish it. Um, originally it was, it was like one book. So it's going to be one book. Um, the field guide was kind of chapter, chapter 12. Uh, and then COVID came. Um, prior to COVID, I'd been in, in, you know, investigating, finding publishers for it. Every publisher in South Africa turned me down. Most of the publishers in the UK turned me down. This book will never sell. It's a niche product. We're, we're really not interesting. So I decided to, you know, sink my own funds into it, uh, and, and self-publish and do it myself. And increasingly, you know, if you sit in a niche, niche area, that's what you have to do. Um, so that's what I did. Uh, I finished the first one because it was kind of easier to finish. This whole topic is that it's, 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 it can be never ending because there's always something coming out of the woodwork somewhere at some other blockhouse. So I drew a line in the sand and said, right, no more blockhouses, no more trips. Uh, I'm going to park the field guide. I'll do that next year. Mm-hmm. And I finished off the, the engineer's perspective because it was kind of a little bit easier to do. Um, got all the rights for all the pictures and, uh, you know, found everything. Um, plants and savings. And then during COVID, COVID <clears throat> for me, it was two and a half months of kind of sat at home with, with my, you know, creative brain in, in, you know, in idle and, and really finished it off, drew a line under it. And, you know, by the time we'd finished COVID, the, the, the engineer's perspective w- was out and I had 500 books to, um, to kind of get to market. <laughs> uh, and then a year later, I, I, I finished the, um, finish the field guide off. The beauty about finishing the, the first book and then doing the second book was I had to delay the second book because people were coming out of the woodwork and saying, whoa, you haven't, there's blockhouses in Heidelberg. I'd never even heard of three fantastic blockhouse ruins on a nature reserve in Heidelberg. Um, you know, about an hour's hike to get to them. But I delayed the book to put them in and, you know, all power to the people who came forward and, and kind of added them. So these are self-published books. You ain't going to find them in, in you know, exclusive books. Um, you'll find them in one or two bookshops who've kind of decided to take them. Um, but it's been an adventure, you know. It's been, a, it's also been a publishing adventure as well. And, uh, having met you, uh, and, um, you know, us teaming up together and it's really a great way of the digital media becoming part of the African culture of digital storytelling. Now you can, you know, read a short story on uh, essay road trip and, uh, you know, it's part, it's part of the, like I'd like to talk about with heritage, part of the ethos of, of telling a little story, a little good story. Um, and there's always a good story to be had in, in anything, you know, um, I think in the engineer's perspective, it tells the story of the guy who, um, went out to, um, on a call of nature one night into the, into the night Came back, forgot the password, and unfortunately got shot. The guy shot him, oh, no. and, and he died. Um, so um, I, I do say that is one of the the real cack stories of the um, the Boer War. You know, he went went out for, for to the crapper and and got shot. And there's a whole <laughs> piece in there. It was, it was written about in the paper, and you know the officers wrote to. Um, evidently, for some reason, he died happy, and he wasn't. You know, didn't it didn't bear a grudge for the guy who. Who shot him? It was his fault for getting the password, and you know the <laughs> British upper lip was was maintained. But it, it, you know, it's one of those little interesting stories, um, and you find them find them all over the app and all over the you know in the books as well. Oh, so yeah, take a piss and get shot. <laughs> <laughs> it just yeah, bad bad luck. You know, one, it's one of those yeah, things. Uh, yeah. uh, that, 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 that's kind of paying the ultimate price. But anyway. Okay, where, where do where do our listeners get hold of your book? On the app, all the blockhouses are on the app or that are in your book. <laughs> There's a link on the app to, to your website, to your email and stuff. Is that the way to get it? Do you want to tell us tell us how to get get hold of your books? Yep, sure. Um, I set up a blockhouse book um, book page www.blockhouses.co.za. You can find me through through that. 
I either to buy the books or I'm also doing talks at the moment. So doing talks on blockhouses, telling the story, saying where they fit into the heritage piece. Um, or you can uh, email me, uh, simonbsr at gmail.com for an order form. Um, but probably the best place to do is go to the, go to the website or you, you know, buy the app and you, you know, find my details on the, on the app as well. And you also, you uh, also got a pretty, pretty good Facebook page. Yeah. I'm on Facebook at, uh, at, uh, ABW Blockhouses. Uh, you'll find me uh, just, I mean, if you go to Google these days, I put myself around on, you know, on social media so much. You, if you Google Blockhouses, You'll find one of these pictures uh, of the books, and then you'd be able yeah. to find me either Facebook or uh, yeah, all the all the kind of media stuff. So you can Google Blockhouses. Um, I've now become Mr. Kind of Mr. Blockhouse. Don't <laughs> wear my Blockhouse hat. Better, better, got... better, Mr. Blockhouse and Mr. Blockhead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was that was the best. You know, he he wasn't convinced, bless him. But um, you know, he was um, he was he was he was never convinced of. You know about anything other than that the you know the boys are going to win. Um, and and just again, your your talks are they open to public or they or do you sort of do it on demand for a little society or club or something? Yeah, or? I'm I'm kind of doing it on on you know on demand. Uh, somebody wants me for a talk or a conference. Um, uh, I've done a lot of kind of you know yeah little societies and and re- you know retirement villages, uh, all those sort of things. I did that. Um, National Heritage Symposium the other week in Mahalisburg. I'm going down to the book fair, um, um, also, um, next week. So anyway, anyway, you know, people are, want to hear the story of, of blockhouses and what they're about. Um, I'm all surprised that, you know, I don't know why, but I'm all surprised how many people are interested. You know, I always think, oh, people won't be interested, but, um, it, it's quite incredible when you start talking to people, especially, um, older generation, anybody with a few gray hairs. How many people live near a blockhouse and played in a blockhouse as a child? Um, for example, on a farm, uh, everybody, you know, as a child, say, yeah, yeah, I used to go to the blockhouse or my dad used to take me or we had one on the farm and we used to play in it and, and things like that. So, uh, kind of nostalgic in some way. Um, in other ways, maybe not so. Um, you talk about the, um, the kind of blockhouses and how they're used today. And I've got a, a friend who bought the books. He's got a, a nice restaurant in Mahalisburg. Um, somebody phoned him up and said, I've got a blockhouse on my property in, in, um, in the free state. You need to come and get that bloody British thing off my farm. I don't want it on there. I just bought the farm. Come and get a blockhouse. So he's, I guess, um, driven down to the free state, got the blockhouse. He's relocating it. Um, to his property in Mahalisburg, where he's going to have a little blockhouse museum. So you've got a blockhouse museum and he's, he's got an old mule track up to the old blockhouse site and he's going to reposition this blockhouse on the mountain and create a little kind of touristy interesting. It's at the Battle of Colcable. You look at the Battle of Colcable, um, the boar's got ambushed up there. So you can go and listen to a, uh, a nice story from the boar, boar side where the, um, you know, the, the Brits got, got clapped in an ambush. Visit a blockhouse museum and have a nice meal in his restaurant as well, which, uh, called 1969. So there's there's kind of bits of heritage, you know, added together. There's a battle, there's a blockhouse, there's a nice little museum of 1960s memorabilia, and somewhere nice to have a cool beer and a, and a you know a meal afterwards. And that's that's South Africa, isn't it? Good story, good beer, good food, good company. <laughs> that is uh, awesome. <laughs> uh, absolutely said, uh, the burra got clapped <laughs> uh, the bridge got clapped with that it, it was a kind of ambush thing. depends who you listen to all, all, every time you, you you're never going to um, please everybody all the time or anybody any of the time with a, with a story so everybody won every battle pretty much depends who side you're on but everybody we should all come out winners but unfortunately uh, yeah. well for, for those that don't know club mean you got uh, slapped around. Got, got, got smacked. Yeah. Got, got smacked hard. Yeah. <laughs> that's just, that's just a South African way of uh, telling you you got donut, got clapped. <laughs> got donut, got clapped, yeah. So when, what I didn't tell you was when I came here first in 2002, uh, I was still in the army but served 
in the South African National Defence Force. So I actually served in the Defence Force. Um, you know, oh, my boss was a, was a logistic um, lieutenant colonel, so he taught me all the all the Afrikaans swear words. So the only words that know really are swear words. So you know, when I want to <laughs> want to lapse into a, a bit of local dialect, it's it's kind of words like that, and I've kept it clean today. So um, yeah, I, you know, I worked here. I, I joined the. Joined the Defence Force for kind of six months. I wore British uniform, but I've got South African medals, and you know, I was served in uh, in the army this side as well, in the in the forces. Yeah. But I think that's a universal thing: is you've got to learn the swear words first. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, guys, I think we can wrap this one. Simon, thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much Simon for this one. Green. Simon Green, uh, go look for his book. And uh, like he said, uh, blockhouses.co.za. You can go take a look there. Uh, Diedrich, uh, th- that was just awesome. Um, it's such a wealth of information about the blockhouses. And it got born out of the uh, Boer Wars in those days. And uh, we've got such a rich history. Now we do. We've got an unbelievable history, and that's what we're always trying to yeah. bring out. And like Simon says, there's always a good story. There's always a good story out there somewhere with this stuff. And just if yeah. you find those little towns, like 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 Springfontein, like Fall, where the whiskey train happened, like oh man, you can you can keep this thing yeah, going yeah. forever. Yeah. You can keep it going forever. Yeah. Your your blockhouse story is never going to end. The road trip app is never going to end. We're uh, never going to find all yeah. this. There's always never, it's never, never ending. There's so the much to never see. ending. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost like a, like, like a holy quest that we've got to do. <laughs> yeah. You, you never, you'll never find everything, but there's always, there's always the next little thing to find. It's a little interesting. Fantastic Fantastic. guys. Simon, thank you so much for joining us on this one. Dear I think it's time to sign off. We're all good with this one. It was awesome. Thank you, Simon. Uh, that was really awesome to hear from you. And, uh, yeah, th- it was just an awesome interview with you. And uh, you got such a, a wealth of information on the block, blockhouses. And, uh, we really appreciate that, uh, that you joined us today. It's been my pleasure.